You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, Deepening Your Practice. It is June 24th, 2021 at 7.36 uh, p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And we're going to be working with the uh, third stage of the Progress of Insight, but I thought uh, that if anybody had any questions, I would start there. Nope. Well, I always just try and connect it to uh, the attachment work. If you're just going straight for the the insight teaching today, I'd just like to ask that you connect it to uh, the attachment work somehow, because that's been the main focus for me. So if I get to put in my two cents, I'll All right. say that. Um, well, the third stage is uh, knowledge of comprehension. And usually what we uh, talk about there is comprehension of not self, comprehension of impermanence and comprehension of um, the suffering. I guess suffering is one of the views, uh, one of the ways it's translated. Um, I often think of that as uh, um, unsatisfactoriness or Uh, reactivity. Uh, Shinzen used to translate it as uh, reactivity. Sorry, as uh, unsatisfactoriness, and Dan Brown tends to translate it as reactivity. Um, Dan's point of view is even if you resolve all of the conditions that create uh, a suffering experience, you're in a body that still is going to react. Shinzen's view is that the the nature of the human condition itself is unsatisfying or unsatisfactory, uh, mainly that you grow old, you get sick and you die, and there's nothing much you can do about that. The second level, of course, is the uh, sometimes you get what you want, because uh, but because everything is impermanent, you lose it. Christian? I'm curious if when I hear the reactivity, I hear an I, I take an implication of that it's um, it's pointing to sort of like my reactions to things are automatic, and that if I were to step back from my automatic re- reaction to any particular thing, then I could kind of do do something thoughtfully without without just reacting to it. Um, but I'm not sure if the, if if I'm reading into that quite a bit, or if it's sort of a different trip attack. No, uh, he doesn't mean that at all. It's just basically that you have these sense responses to objects. And if they, if even if you work through all of the conditioning that would cause suffering to arise, uh, if a, a light photon hits the uh, retina, there's an, a reaction of sensing. If uh, a sound wave hits the eardrum, there's a reaction mm-hmm. of uh, hearing. Uh, even if there's no uh, ear consciousness or eye consciousness, there's still the uh, sensing activity itself. Okay. 
Um, I I think that it, so, he, go ahead. So are are we just establishing the idea that the nature of the six sense spaces is suffering? Uh, no, not necessarily. The uh, the activity of clinging to the sense gates uh, would be the the origin of suffering. Is that how you think about it? Well, I was just asking to see how how you how you think about it because I would consider that uh, craving and clinging is it's present in every moment of sense consciousness for uh, unenlightened people. Correct. So that's suffering. So, <laughs> no, I know. But what Dan is saying is even if you work through all of that so that there is no craving, aversion, or unconsciousness in response to the sensing experience, the sensing activity still happens. For, right. Right. So that would be considered as... Uh, Suffering, yeah. I mean, it has the characteristic of suffering, doesn't it? Only if you cling, okay. only if you're aversive, only if you go unconscious. Okay. Um, not necessarily my for formulation, just my understanding of how it's been formulated. Okay. Um, I think in that state, of course, you wouldn't fixate anything. So uh, there would be no, say, eye consciousness. There'd just be uh, uh, eye sensing or ear sensing, ear activation, right? Um, uh, did you want to say something, Harley? No, I'm good. Thank you. Strange. There we go. Uh, that ro that robotic sound wasn't me, but no, sorry, I was unmuted. <laughs> My apologies, George. <laughs> um. So. One of the things about the progress of insight is uh, that you you begin at the beginning you you identify uh, uh, um, in the first stage uh, the difference between mental and physical phenomena and the in the second stage really uh, conditionality you understand that this moment leads into the next the previous moment led into this uh, that you don't have to catch everything that. Um, you can infer based on uh, a, a complete experience of one type of sensing experience that all types of sensing experience like that will unfold in a similar way. And then you move into this uh, initial uh, exploration of the three characteristics of the three marks of existence, um, Anita, Nacha, and Dukkha. Anita is not self. Uh, did I say Anatta or Anicca? Anatta is not self, and Nietzsche is impermanence, and uh, dukkha is uh, suffering or unsatisfactoriness or re reactivity. Um, it is really in, in this stage uh, a uh, initial investigation. You really don't get to the deep dive into this until the 6th, 7th, and 8th. And then also in the 10th, where you really begin to uh, deeply integrate this uh, 
understanding of the nature of things into the into the perception of self and world. Um, <clears throat> I often talk about the attachment stuff to uh, touch on, on Jake's suggestion as the preliminary practices in order to get into this stuff, uh, because if you um, don't have a foundation uh, that you can safely explore from uh, to begin to touch into these experiences can be disorienting and painful, and that prevents you from going too much further into it. Uh, the habit of uh, practice in the, the West is to come uh, because uh, the, your uh, suffering has been unaddressable in other uh, modalities and uh, turning toward meditation on one end. Uh, this is, if you look at a bell curve of people who come to practice, on one end, it's people don't function very well have a lot of distress in, in being alive and are looking for ways to come out of it. And on the other end of the bell curve are people that function really well and still find that uh, achieving all of the stuff that they find achievable doesn't provide a sense of meaningfulness uh, in uh, being here. This ties in, of course, to these basic attachment concepts of uh, attachment, exploration and then the collaboration system in order to really explore deeply you need to have a base uh, 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 in the attachment literature it's called a secure base or john bulby used it uh, used it as a uh, his phrase was a secure base from which to explore from but most people don't have a secure base to explore from they just have a base <laughs> <laughs> that they try to touch into, uh, depending on how it went for you when you were a kid. Um, uh, one of the things that you learn in the uh, uh, secure attachment system is that the things that, uh, the, the qualities that you have, the, the interests that you have are valuable and important and worth pursuing and that you have caregivers that recognize those uh, uh, capabilities that you have and those interests that you have. And that's what they encourage you to begin to explore and to begin to develop. Um, and so from the very earliest uh, of your uh, conscious awake, you know, your conscious experience, your autobiographical memory of what happens, you're pursuing that uh, uh, combination, things that you're good at and things that are interesting to you and things that you derive meaning from. And so that becomes the, the nature of your understanding of what, what life is really about. And you develop the skills that you need in order to be able to, to do that. And we would call that a primary exploration. The reason that you're pursuing it is because you derive meaning from doing it. Um, and you have the support that you need. And part of that is the, the returning to your secure base and sharing what it is that you've discovered and uh, being delighted in and having an interest in what you found out and uh, the sense of your view, your, your uh, understanding, your uh, 
ideas about things being valued and uh, the, uh, the constant sense of support and encouragement to go do more. And so you, you go out and you explore and then you come back and you share your exploration. Um, it's valuable and then you go out and you explore and then you come back. And the, that's the natural uh, a flow of, uh, of life. Um, so the attachment mechanism goes off, you seek proximity to your secure base, your secure base helps you emotionally regulate, they're interested in what you're exploring, that activates the exploring mechanism and you go back out into the world. And you develop this sense of self, which is based on those kinds of things. Uh, the sense of self arises based on the conditions in the present moment. So, um, and we have a working model of gists, uh, these little sort of algorithms of that are activated that uh, generate sensing experiences uh, in the body mind. And depending on the pattern of that, we recognize and identify that as the experience of self. And so if you have a positive model of the sense of self, when the experience of self arises, it's a pleasant experience. Uh, you, you have a sense of value in that. You have a sense of enjoyment in the experience of self. You have strategies for emotionally regulating the experience of self that are positive and beneficial. Um, but that isn't the, the nature of the self-experience for everybody as it arises. Um, depending on that process. Did you have a question? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I just wanted to iterate on that a little bit. So, I mean, it would kind of make sense then that people with a negative sense of self would feel that it's something that they should annihilate or is something that they should destroy or that their ego is wrong or bad. I mean, I just wonder if you must see that a lot in the in the Buddhist world. And I was just looking for some kind of confirmation about that topic. You oh. know, the, the link the linkage between self-esteem or negative self-esteem and uh, the desire for annihilation and how that could get acted out through, you know, believing in not self, for instance. Well, it's uh, it might be just that, that simple aversion to pain, a painful mm -hmm. experience, not so much mm -hmm. this uh, a kind of um, advanced uh, concept of the annihilation of self, but each time the sense of self arises, it's an unpleasant experience that you then become aversive to. And then you begin to look for strategies that relieve you from having to have the, uh, that experience over and over again. And then if you uh, pull yourself in the direction of practices where the self-experience gets weaker and weaker in some sense, the adva the advantage that you're experiencing is less and less pain. And mm -hmm. if you can get really good at, uh, uh, mm -hmm. um, certainly in the Theravada practices, uh, having these no self experiences, that, then th there really is very little pain in those experiences. And so you have the positive reinforcement of the absence of pain and when the sense of self activates strongly, you have a strong experience of pain and uh, yeah. would suggest not the most equanimity with the experience of the sense of self arising. But even without that uh, 
capacity uh, and skill in meditation to get that to happen. People who build a working model of self that contains a lot of negative uh, experiences, mm -hmm. uh, they become quite uh, aversive to the experience of self. They can't get out of it, mm -hmm. but they become uh, aversive to it, which I think is yeah. the origin of self-hatred. The experience mm -hmm. of self arises, it's very painful, and then you, you just hate it. And mm -hmm. when you uh, begin to pay attention to the, the yeah. nature of self and the arising of self, it's constantly arising based on the conditions of the present moment, most of which you have no control over. So you mm -hmm. may also find that uh, the tendency is to want to withdraw from the world, to withdraw from stimulation, so that you have mm -hmm. more sense of control in when the selfing experience arises. Right. But, but the conditioning around the, the experience of self arising really does come from that early experience of the exchange with the caregiver. I was doing some ideal parent figure work myself uh, in the last few days. And what I was noticing that was so interesting about where the practice is for me now is that when I imagine myself as a young child, um, I see myself as this uh, delightful, beautiful, energetic, curious uh, little boy. And then I see the way that my bio parents reacted to that. And it, it it's troubling and puzzling that they disliked that so much and that they were so punitive in getting me to be different than the way that I was. When I, when I look at myself and, and the memories and the, that I have of myself, uh, I, I really like that, that, that little boy. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, and his uh, way of being in the world. And so uh, that's this, this uh, process of shifting into mm. really uh, repairing the, the, or uh, helping to change those uh, negative, uh, the negative input from uh, the caregivers themselves. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, and, and I really do recommend that you not try to figure this out because then you just get involved in the mindsets of the caregivers, but why they would react to this kid who was just sort of curious and exploring and um, light and uh, funny uh, in the way that they did is a mystery really in a sense, but it, but it was, extreme my mother was extremely corrective in terms of how i presented myself um, and so what of course happens then is that you begin to associate those natural expressions of self and those natural interests that you have with something negative and you begin to attempt to su suppress them so that you don't get the negative feedback from the caregivers but if that is actually the core, the essential nature of what interests you and what has meaning to you, then you're being instructed out of your primary exploration into a secondary exploration, which is uh, pursuing things that get you uh, a response from the caregivers that's, that's easier to be with, if that makes sense. So 
you you direct yourself away from the things that are of primary importance to you toward the things that are of primary importance to the caregivers that you have uh, so that you can get their care and that you can survive from that and and it can be such a harsh uh, treatment that you lose track of the things that are essential the things that really um, um, motivated and and had meaning to you and pursue the secondary exploration of what was meaningful to them that would shift you out of the secure functioning place into a dismissing functioning place you have to shut down and suppress the the natural experience of yourself and become uh, something else so that uh, uh, your caregivers will respond to you often in those situations um, uh, there's a kind of uh, pressure to be autonomous way way too early so that you become independent or independent of requiring their care is really what it's about but at the same time mm -hmm. acknowledging in a way that's meaningful to them that they're good at taking care of you mm -hmm. uh, that kind of conundrum really causes a suppression of your uh, of the vitalness of your emotional life because uh, you can't hold the contradiction um in in order to become um, preoccupied of course what ends up happening is that the experience of being um, separated from the child is unbearable to the caregiver and so they they restrict the exploration of the child and um, what happens there of course is the same loss of attention to the primary uh, sense of exploration um, mainly because the child is prevented from developing the capacity to explore so they don't have the experience of deciding what's meaningful and what isn't meaningful they're just prevented from doing it both of these create these um, absences of thought processes uh, that make up that model of the self when it activates if uh, what ends up happening for a uh, a preoccupied person is when the sense of self arises and none of that working model of the sense of self includes uh, an understanding of how to explore and so that doesn't arise in the mind in the same way that a child that's encouraged to be uh, autonomous too early doesn't uh, um, figure out how to collaborate so in that original description that i gave you the child goes out and is encouraged and supported to explore and then they come back and they share the exploration and then they're encouraged and supported to explore more and that's the beginning of this collaborative model this exchange um, but dismissing people don't have that so you have these three mechanisms the attachment mechanism the exploration mechanism and the collaboration method uh, mechanism in Secure people, all three of them function really well, and in insecure people, often the collaborative system is shut down because it wasn't developed. Uh, the sense of self arises, uh, 
and then uh, it's reflected back to you from the from your caregiver uh, and uh, evaluated and you take in that that experience of it and you build it up this working model um, In dismissing adults, they tend to be very good at exploring, but it's almost always secondary exploration and they don't have a sense really of what would be meaningful to them. And they, they find that they're able to get these secondary goals, but they don't really resonate that much. They don't feel anything because the main way that they regulate their emotion is by not feeling so that when the sense of self arises, it's incomplete uh, in that sense. Uh, and they tend to be idealizing so that they tend to inflate uh, values so that you have a, a sense of self that's very distorted from what actually is there. And one of the things about this process of exploration, particularly through meditation, is to uh, contemplate the nature of self as arising based on these working models and to see that if you if you can move yourself toward a experience of self that arises that's actually reflective of what uh, your capacities are, your interests are, and that also is infused with enough positivity so that the experience of it arising is pleasant. You do come into equanimity and you do come into this knowledge that it is a temporary uh, sensing experience that arises based on conditioning. Um, but the freedom comes from being able to move in and out of it, out of the, that particular moment of self-arising uh, into the next moment without clinging or holding on to that or gripping on to the nature of uh, self being permanent. That touches into that contemplation of everything is impermanent from the individual sensing experience to uh, the thing that you make out of those individual sensing experiences. Is that all making sense? One of the reasons I like to talk about attachment so much is because it describes that uh, experience in quite a bit of detail. And, uh, it's, and the descriptions of those views help uh, to decode the moment by moment experience of it so that you can see uh, uh, the modeling of it as distinct from uh, the, the activity of sensing that uh, creates it and in, in, in that way gain the insight into the nature of it being ephemeral and temporary. Um, you know, and tr traditions vary. The, the, the Tibetan idea is not to uh, 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 come into a hard no-self state. Uh, and it is to really identify mainly with awareness and make that quite expansive and then allow all of these sensing experiences to come and go. Uh, you, be, you identify with the sky and then the clouds of experience roll through. Um, uh, Dan uh, says that in different studies they've done of advanced practitioners that uh, depending on the practice you do, different parts of the brain um, become active or deactivated, and that in the Theravada practices, particularly around a strong sense of no self, that the ACC shuts down, and so you don't have a, a self experience, and that can be quite depersonalizing. Whereas 
in the Tibetan practices, it shifts from the the local uh, part of the prefrontal cortex to the parietal lobe, which is more global in terms of how it perceives things. And so that uh, we come again to this idea of uh, the type of practice you do tends to lead to the type of insight that you have. And so what is it that you're understanding uh, to be uh, the exploration of your practice or the, uh, I know that um, we're not supposed to have goals in practice, or at least when I came to practice early on, they were said, we're not supposed to have goals for our practice. So uh, we would call it the non-goal of our practice as a way of getting around that. But, you know, in, in the West, we're very oriented toward goals. And so making goals in terms of practice actually can move you forward. It's just in that moment of uh, the, the, in the Theravada uh, practice of trying to come into those profound cessation experiences that in that moment before uh, when you need to be without goals, you're not clinging to the goals that you established so that you can just let go of them. And um, I one time likened it to uh, standing at the edge of a pool and just letting go of all tension and falling into the pool. And Shinzen said for him, the experience was more like you're standing at the edge of the pool and then the pool rises up and surrounds you. So um, however you want to think about it, uh, you come into that place, uh, you have a sense that something big could happen, you have the sense that it's going to happen, and then you come out of it, uh, and the sense of self reassembles, uh, and you have that direct experience of none of the conditioning uh, or any of its meanings are uh, interfering with the expression of uh, just liveliness of being. And then, of course, it all comes back on and you see that it, the limitations of it, in it and understand that that uh, is um, limiting beliefs and then that because you have the direct experience of knowing the, the uh, way of being without that there and then it attaching um, uh, mainly fuels the, the uh, goal of, of being able to have agency and moving back and forth between it. Um, <clears throat> one of the practices that I recommend uh, in working with the experience of self is a loving kindness practice or compassion practice or sympathetic joy practice, uh, equanimity, that all of those uh, from the Brahma Viharas, uh, particularly focused on the expression of self so that you can begin to infuse into the working model that you currently have of the self-experience, very positive experiences. So over and over again, uh, you're in, you're uh, generating these positive states that intentionally generating the experience of self so that when you go through the process of remembering that, then these gists, these working models of that experience are created and associated with the self. Each time uh, 
as you uh, move uh, into the future, when the sense of self is activated, those new intentionally positive experiences are associated with the sense of self. And if you do that practice consistently enough, that uh, positivity that's been associated with the experience of self becomes the dominant experience of self. And the, the conditioned negativity, um, particularly if it comes from the early attachment relationships, becomes secondary. And so then the sense of self arises and it's a pleasant sense of self. It's enjoyable when the sense of self arises and that, that aversive reaction is overcome. Uh, of course, you have to be careful to hold, have equanimity with it so that the, the uh, craving aversion or the clinging aversion doesn't uh, overtake the aversive experience of it. Christian. Have you noticed in working with people with different attachment patterns any kind of correlation or sense that people with different attachment patterns have a weaker or stronger sense of self, whether that be positive or negative than, than other patterns? Um, I do. Uh, I think that if you look at um, attachment, uh, the attachment system, uh, attachment, which of course activates and deactivates the exploration system, drives you back to somebody who will protect you. Uh, when that turns off the um, exploration system turns on and then you can go explore and then you have the collaboration system. In uh, secure people, that all works really well. Um, and so when the sense of self arises, you have this uh, vi uh, vital, alive, lively sense of self. In dismissing uh, people, the attachment system is shut off uh, and the exploration system is on and the collaboration system is off. And so the sense of self that arises for them is quite uh, um, rigid. Uh, it's a very rigid sense of self. It's a very grandiose sense of self. It's very fragile. In uh, preoccupied people, the attachment system is hyperactivated, the exploration system is deactivated, and the collaboration system is off. And so they tend to have much less uh, strong sense of self because they're so oriented toward uh, uh, pretending to be what the person they're interested in wants. So they're very active in interpreting what they need to be teleologically and then uh, attempting to present that. So the, that consistent uh, uh, model of self arising is, is, is uh, quite varied depending on who the attachment figure is at the time and more of a reflection of that. Um, in the disorganized person, uh, the attachment system is off, the exploration system is off, and the collaboration system is off. And they're really the ones that we think of having the, the weakest uh, sense of self, that, uh, that they, don't, they don't, they hide. And so the sense of self that would arise base and be mirrored back to them uh, 
that would reinforce a, a positive sense of self or a strong sense of self uh, typically doesn't happen to them because they're hiding so much. And so they don't have a sense of how uh, other people see them as much, uh, which is where that sense of self comes back to us. It's We put it out and then it's reflected back to us from the people around us. Is that making sense? So we go ahead. So we really need the feedback from others in the process of moving from an insecure state to a secure state. We really need to be in that process of receiving the positive reinforcement or the positive information from others. Well, it, you know, if you look at the ideal parent figure uh, uh, protocol, you can develop uh, those models. Uh, that are internal um, they're facilitated by somebody who helps you do that but you you create those models intentionally uh, and they're they're a better match for what you need than if you simply rely on what other people do so you're taking in the information and comparing it to the internal working model uh, in some sense uh, what you're trying to do is effectively communicate um, this is what I think is going on. What do you think is going on? So that's the, the secure exchange. You're willing to express yourself authentically and then see how other people understand that. And in uh, that communication, that exchange, you get a better sense of it, of, of yourself and how you express and how people experience that expression. That helps you adjust the working model so that you can be uh, more efficient in getting the things that you want, uh, that, that, so that your exploration is more supported. Um, but if you can't do that, of course, you don't have that, that collaborative cycle. Uh, of and the, and the, that also requires being in contact with other secure people, doesn't it? Because if you're if you're coming from an insecure place and trying to get the positive feedback for secure relating, but you're not online to figure out like you know who's secure, who's not, what's a secure relationship, or co co you know what's cooperative and what's uncooperative, because in the world people may be presenting themselves as cooperative when in fact they're quite uncooperative. I think that that might be relatively common. Yeah, I think one of the things that happens is, is that if nobody's modeled security to you, you don't know what it is. Yeah. And so you, you right. can't uh, learn it in that way. Right, right. One of the things about ideal parent figure, of course, is that you have a facilitator that understands the differences, can recognize each of the expressions of different attachments, and then can uh, interpret that in real time as it's happening and constantly redirect you toward security so that you build the model of security internally. Once you have the model of security internally, you can, you can begin to operate from that place. It's, Sorry, let me ask, what do you think is the potential for this work to enter into like school systems and like social, you know, like just be part of the common knowledge of people that if, if, if the secure functioning is so important. 
you know, what do you think is the potential that this information could be disseminated more widely into society? I think that uh, um, it is like anything new. Um, there, people have studied how new ideas arise and enter into the mainstream. Um, in the beginning, of course, is the exploration that discovers the new idea. And then there's a formulation of the idea in such a way that it can be expressed. And then uh, in a small group of people who hear the teaching are then interested in it and are drawn to it and begin to practice it. Uh, have you have you've heard the hundred monkey theory? Yeah. Uh, uh, no. Uh, um, so uh, when it was originally described to me, it was about a troop of baboons who lived in a in a on a sort of uh, um, a tropical. Um, in a tropical environment, and um, the, they survived largely on fruit, and uh, they were very particular about eating the fruit only when it was ripe. But as soon as the fruit uh, got ripe, it would drop off the tree and get covered with sand. Uh, and so the monkeys, uh, the baboons, were often in trouble because the the uh, they wouldn't be able to eat the fruit. Uh, when it ripened necessarily, and then once it dropped onto the sand, they wouldn't be able to eat it because it was covered with sand. So there was always a food shortage. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, one of the baboons figured out that if they took the, the fruit that had the sand on it and they washed it in the river, the sand came off and then they could eat the fruit. And it was a big troop, but she was the only one who was doing it. And then she taught her children to do it, and then they learned to do it. And then their friends, their children taught their friends to do it. And then their friends taught their parents to do it. And so the knowledge moved out very slowly through these uh, social connections until enough people were doing that. It just almost, um, overnight everyone in the troop was doing it and yeah. so i think that that's i'm i'm sure i've wrecked the story so uh, uh <laughs> but uh you get the the uh, gist <laughs> and um, so um attachment was presented in the in the mid 80s by john bowlby uh the research was incomplete it really wasn't presented uh, to the clinical population until uh, the uh, 2000s and a modality that actually could uh, create uh, change uh, has been um, uh, so new that what we're beginning, what we, what phase we're in here is just the dissemination of the knowledge into these small uh, groups uh, that are then developing the skill to practice it. In order for it to disseminate widely, of course, we have to have a lot of people who are skillful at being able to uh, uh, offer it. 
uh, so people can have the uh, have the effect of it, uh, and that it's an exponential uh, expression, but. Um, um, We'll get there, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I'm seeing a note from Harley. Um, one of the things about it, uh, uh, attachment parenting, um, which Harley is mentioning is, um, there have been um, lots of different approaches um, to uh, understanding that the, the care of children is essential into developing secure attachment and attempting to understand that. Uh, and one of the conversations I had with Mary Main was that she was not so interested in um, repairing people's attachment because it was so resource and time intensive to do it, that it would be better that we simply <laughs> let everybody who's attachment is is uh you know fucked up uh just go and then focus mainly on child rearing uh, so that we can begin to eliminate it at that level where it's it's uh not as challenging to do but i'm sorry i'm sorry go ahead i was just going to ask if you could expand on that theory though i mean how is that possible how is uh if, you know how is that mathematically even going to work you mean uh, attachment parenting? No, no. I mean, just the idea that it seems really prominent in the psychotherapy and attachment uh, community, which is that basically just how, how are children's attachments going to get repaired if their parents don't have the skills to do it? It just doesn't well, make any what sense. What I mean is that you, you engage in psychoeducation of the parents so that they don't create the attachment injuries in the first place but they're going to if they if psychoeducation doesn't change their attachment pattern it doesn't matter i totally it's agree fair. with you on that one and i think that it that actually in fact it doesn't work um yeah. but uh that might be one certainly one direction that that is being pursued okay christian Oh, I was just saying that uh, luckily for that plan, uh, US, <laughs> a lot of time and resources and money into our children and education. So uh, that should work out just great. I mean, we, uh, we I did this study with uh, Metagroup. I took the Metagroup co cohort that we'd been studying to see how we could get attachment to shift just through meditation and uh, psychoeducation. And uh, we we established in at least in our cohort that uh, psychoeducation and mentalizing development does not shift underlying attachment. It adds secure functioning to the end of the long chain of it, um, but it doesn't change the the fundamental underlying attachment strategy. But when you add to that the ideal parent figure protocol, it does shift it, and it reliably shifts it. So you, you need all three of these things. You need to teach attachment, you need to teach exploration, and you need to teach collaboration. And without those three systems being developed, people uh, aren't, aren't able to uh, earn security. Uh, 
doesn't mean you get a new secure brain. You can't swing by the Ford dealer and have them put in a new part. Uh, you have your brain, which developed and uh, physically is structured like your native attachment, but you have a way of operating that brain so that you can uh, uh, be, uh, uh, you know, functionally secure. That's basically what happens. So um, why don't we leave that there and do some meditation practice? Um, I thought that we might do a self-inquiry practice. So um, in uh, using a basic see here field technique, exploring uh, where the location of the self is. Um, one of the things about uh, self-inquiry work is that intellectually we can understand, oh, the sense of self arises based on conditioning. Uh, it's a sensing experience, which isn't different from any other sensing experience. And we, we then have this perception of duality. I am the self viewing things. Um, at least it, I think that cognitively that's easier to, to grasp than to exhaust yourself looking for the seat of the, the experience of self somewhere. Um, but if you don't do an ardent search, the self uh, itself does not give up on the idea that it's actually substantial. And so you need to really uh, pursue this with uh, intention. So in see, hear, feel, we're just dividing sensory experience into these three broad domains. And then each time uh, we come into a particular sensing experience, we're going to inquire, uh, is the self located here? Uh, the correct answer, just in case uh, you didn't pick this up, is no. <laughs> All right. And so we're going to do uh, an ardent search. 